Hi, guys. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. I'm Liz Wheeler. So I want to do this episode today a little differently than normal. I actually had an entire script written and prepared to do the show today. But I'm here at the Young America's Foundation Conference. And I've been interviewing a lot of the speakers as they as they finish their talks. And I sat down today with Dr. James Lindsay. And what we talked about, I, I asked him about the marriage between critical race theory and queer theory, and how this one-two punch is turning a generation of our children into Marxists and revolutionaries, essentially, that are completely tied to the Democratic Party. And yes, it's a heavy conversation. It's a detailed conversation. But as you can tell, um, I feel very invigorated and excited about this topic because we not only talked about this tactic, this Marxist tactic, this, this assault on our children, he answered a question that I know I have, I often have, I know you have often, which is who exactly is behind this Marxist assault? We talk about the historical Marxists and their theories and how that's being applied in our modern days. But who are the modern Marxists? Who are the people that are controlling the politicians and controlling the institutions? And Dr. Lindsay had an incredible answer to that. He also, after we deconstructed all of this, I asked him what's essentially the million dollar question which is, are we going to be able to save America from this Marxist assault? And if so, how do we do that? And his answer to that question, this was a very cerebral discussion, a very intellectual discussion, but his answer to that question actually gave me the chills. It made me feel so encouraged and excited to fight this fight that we filmed this video for VIPs on the Liz Wheeler Show community. These are the kind of discussions we have over there we talk about strategy, we talk about tactics, how to win this fight. Um, but this conversation was so important that I want you all to listen to it. I want to share it with everybody far and wide, send this to everybody you know, because it is critically important. And by the way, um, Dr. Lindsay talked today, I'm slated to talk at the Young America's Foundation conference on Friday. If you're interested in watching any of these remarkable speakers talk, you can go to youtube.com slash TV. But um, this conversation is, I want to share it with you now. This is what I think that I needed to hear. I think that you will also um, feel encouraged and invigorated. And please, if you haven't already, join us on the Liz Wheeler Show community on Locals. It's lizwheelershow.com slash locals. You can use my promo code, which is access to get your first month free on your annual subscription, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Without further ado, this is Dr. James Lindsay. All right, we are here at the Young America's Foundation in Washington, D.C. We're actually in the belly of the beast, um, sort of the basement of the swamp right now. But it's more fun to talk about some of the heavy topics when you are right at, when you're right in the midst of all of this, when you're right in the midst of all of these, the administrative state, the, the, the deep staters, the swamp creatures. And I am honored to be joined by Dr. James Lindsay. Good to see you. Good to see you too. I'm not a swamp creature, as it turns out. You are not, but... No. Um, accepting the two of us and maybe the crew in this room, most of the other people around here, not the students at the conference, but most of the people in Washington, D.C. are. Yeah, it's kind of funny. You walk around the city, you're like, oh, these are D.C. people. Huh? Yeah, really? for sure. You know, like no judgment. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I feel a little judgment. Um, what I want to talk to you about today is something you and I talk about frequently offline, and that is not just critical race theory, not just queer theory. Um, critical race theory, obviously being, as you call it, race Marxism, queer theory being, well, the sexual abuse of children and indoctrination. But how the left has married these two Marxist theories 
um, into a strategic assault on our nation's children. Yeah, that's absolutely a core thing that people need to understand that, in fact, critical race theory is kind of a minor problem. We spend a lot of energy, a lot of time talking about it, decoding it, understanding what they're doing to racialize uh, circumstances, racialize the children while pretending they're the ones deracializing it. That's the typical, you know, projection there. But what critical race theory mostly does is sets up to move into queer theory or queer Marxism or the mental and sexual abuse of children, as it might better be phrased. And so the idea is actually stolen from a particular historical character of great fame, Mao Zedong uh, from China. It is the Maoist strategy. A lot of people don't know their Maoist history, and they don't know that what Mao did to create his revolutionary guard out of mostly kids and students was that he created 10 different identity categories. Five of them he made bad and Five of them he made good. The bad ones were the black identities for fascism and the good ones were the red identities for communism. The black identities, if I can remember all five of them on the spot, were uh, rich farmer, landlord, um, counter-revolutionary, bad influence. That's your um, moms are domestic terrorists now, uh. by the way. And that's our word for it is domestic terrorists. And then right-winger. Just yeah. not to, you know, not to be too ambiguous about who they're against, right-winger is the other black category. The five red categories were for the hammer, you have the laborers, for the sickle, you have the peasants, and then you have revolutionaries, revolutionary cadre members, and revolutionary martyrs. And so what Mao did was if you, as say an adult or a parent, uh, had one of the black identities, then your children by proxy got a black identity too. If you had a red one, so did your children, probably, depending on how they behaved. If you as a child were labeled a black identity, they treated you worse, they treated you differently, they gave special stuff to the red identity students, and so they created a pressure to move out of the black identities into the red identities. You might maybe denounce your parents. You might rat your parents out. You might go engage in revolutionary activism. You might go desecrate a temple. You might go destroy a statue, something like this. And then you can be in the revolutionary category within the red identities. So he made bad identity categories, treated kids badly if they were in the bad identity categories, and then created a set of solutions to adapt to that pressure, that struggle session style pressure by giving people an out, which has become a revolutionary for our cause, or I guess a, a peasant or a laborer, but not as a child. And then you can be free of this uh, stigma that we've attached to you and your identity. Now we come to modern America. You have all these bad identities like straight, white, male, straight, female, white, female, etc. And you use critical race theory to demonize that racial component tremendously. Can't do anything about your skin color. So what do they tell you are your options? If you're a white person, you can become a racial ally, an anti-racist ally. If you are a person of color, as they like to term it, you can become an activist on behalf of your race. You can become politically black. You can become politically brown. Brown is everybody's favorite race in 2022. Um, the brown race. Uh, we had Ayanna Presley saying, you know, swamp creatures, speaking of swamp creatures, saying that we uh, we don't want any more black faces who don't want to be black voices. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be brown voices, whatever a brown voice happens to be. But it's a politically active identity. But then they're going to tell you you're never doing it right especially allyship. White allies are never doing it right. You're recentering yourself. You're putting white privilege forward, blah, blah, blah. But there are other good identities you could adopt. You could become pansexual. You could be demigender. You could be trans. 
You could be non-binary. And so you adopt one of these queer Marxist identities, political identities, where your sense of self is defined in terms of your politics and opposition to anything within what might be called the normal, whether that's in sex, gender, sexuality, or mental health status, fat status, ability status, et cetera. You define yourself by being opposed to the normal. And then you have a good identity. So there's a pressure being put on children to fall out of these bad stigmatized identities into these so-called good revolutionary identities. And the process is extra horrific where we're not dealing with little, you know, Maoists taking to the street or bad naming their parents or whatever else. Instead, what they're doing is voluntarily undergoing chemical sterilization. They're voluntarily signing up for surgeries to cut off their breasts or genitals. Um, they're taking massive amounts of hormones that do incredible irreparable damage to their bodies at very young ages. They're, according to the state of California now, with Scott Weiner's new bill that uh, just, I think, passed, they have set it up to where that state is now a sanctuary state for LGBTQ, which enables the state of California to steal the parental rights of anybody from any other state. Any child who may, under any minor who makes it to the state of California declaring themselves as an LGBTQ refugee will be uh, adopted by the state, put into state protective custody, and will uh, begin their social transition and physical transition process accordingly. So they can literally steal your kids from other states. So which is terrifying. It's horrifying. It's literally horrifying. It's kind. Of, it, I, I describe it as a one-two punch. Right? Critical race theory comes in and tells you that you're evil because you're white, not because you demean another race, just because they tell you that your ancestors were racist based on their white skin and your success or where you are, your privileges on the shoulders of the white supremacy. And then they offer you a way. It's, it's irredeemable, right? If it's not a choice that you're making or a feeling that you have or a, a thought process that you undergo. And then they tell you that you can redeem yourself by choosing one of these one of these essentially transgender ideology um, identities. And they don't care that they're hurting children because in fact, they're willing to hurt children because in the process of removing these children from from their families, they're cementing the children as Marxist revolutionaries because those children are always going to vote Democrat. That's right. They're, they're, they're making it so the only place that they feel like they can possibly fit in is with that revolutionary cadre that they're forming around those children. Uh, and worse than that, um, what the Marxists through the mid, mid part of the 20th century figured out, they're like, why can't we get Marxism to stick? These are the critical Marxists yeah. or critical theorists as they were called. The Frankfurt School Frankfurt guys. School yeah. guys. How, why is it that Marxism won't stick here? You know, the different solutions that they thought of in the 20s and that, you know, largely the cultural Marxists talked about nationalism being too persuasive and the cultural hegemony and yada, yada. Well, I mean, that's what's behind, by the way, if you don't mind the interruption, that's what's behind the no borders thing. Yes, of because course. You can't, have, you can't have sovereignty. You can't have a nation. Uh, or the Marxists posited that you can't have a nation if you want Marxism to succeed. That's right. And so the Democrats were like, well, okay, well, let's destroy this one. That's right. Plus bringing in intersectional uh, yeah. and conflicting identity groups to let the dialectic play out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so you 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 have to do this this kind of thing um, specifically to try to break down all of those borders. But these critical Marxists were like, you know what it really is is stability. If you have economic stability, people won't become revolutionaries. So our working class has become stable. And as a stable entity, they become conservative. They become counter-revolutionary. How do we overcome this? Well, we have to look to where there's instability. So they said, let's look to the racial minorities. And I say they, I mean Herbert Marcuse specifically. We can name him. We can name the articles that he wrote, like the essay on liberation that he wrote, 
or the uh, the the book Counter Revolution and Revolt, where he says these things explicitly. The book One Dimensional Man, where he says this explicitly. We have to look to other places: the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, the um, feminists, the outsiders, the homeless. Uh, these are the people that we actually have to look to for the base of revolutionary energy. And so when they go to that base of revolutionary energy, the goal is to destabilize them. If they are psychologically stable, they're not moldable. A lot of people don't understand the point of what is a woman. The point isn't that nobody can say what a woman is. The point is that the left gets to define what a woman is. So you can't tell by your own senses, like I'm using my eyes right now and can find a woman as it turns out. It's crazy. If you're a biologist, I'll take your word for it. I'm not even. <laughs> but if you say that the category of woman has been complicated or queered, as queer Marxism would do, then I can't adjudicate with on the basis of my senses who I'm speaking with or who I'm dealing with. And therefore, I have to use something else, namely an expert. I have to have an expert gender studies person come in and tell me if you call, qualify legitimately as a woman or if that you maybe are trans and don't know it or something. It's, it's so messed up, but you untangle it beautifully for what a complex mess it is. But I, a couple of questions. So I think a lot of people, especially parents in this country, who for better or for worse during COVID saw this kind of poison being poured into their children's minds because of Zoom school. And they said, wait a second, we might not understand, you know, the, all of the Marxism underneath it, but we know intuitively that this is wrong. Who is behind this? And I know that that's a very wide ranging mm -hmm. question, but if you if you talk to politicians off camera, these politicians are not smart people. <laughs> Sometimes, but usually not. They're in in general, they're not. I mean, there can be a smart politician, but the politicians aren't necessarily the ones who are driving this agenda. Oftentimes, no, in my experience, they're the useful idiots that allow it to happen. Whether it's naivete on the Republican part or simply. Um, I don't know, they fall for it. They're gullible on the Democrat part. So where is this coming from? Who are the modern Marxists and who holds the power to drive this agenda? Well, we need to use the German <laughs> accent to communicate with this Klaus Schwab character. Now, um, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum is one of the large drivers pushing this. Uh, a lot of fingers have to be pointed at the big foundations, though, that he has helped coordinate, that he's he works with members of the World Economic Forum and beyond. I do like to single out the World Economic Forum because I do kind of think that that Davos meeting is kind of the center of this disaster, kind of broadly speaking in terms of, you know, who's who's pushing it, who are the who's who's yeah. that are doing it. But, you know, who's funding these initiatives so strongly in education? Well, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Tides Foundation, these big entities are dumping rivers of money. We could, of course, point to the Open Society Foundation. That's Soros. That's your open borders, really. His agenda is actually somewhat different, but his agenda on this is not different. So, Are they aware of what they're doing or are they mostly, stooges? Mostly, yes. Many of them are. So is Bill uh, Gates a Marxist? I don't know if he's a Marxist or a Malthusian, uh, but he's something not good. He may not be a Marxist. He may just be a... Uh, death cultist about the prospects of a large human population. Um, he's nothing good. Uh, he could also, maybe he's just a monopolist. I, yeah. I don't know the insides of these people's Some of them heads. fall for technocracy as well. That's right. And so... Godless are, technocracy. There's a good case to be made that Klaus Schwab is a Marxist. Uh, he has a bust of Lenin behind him in his office, for example. Yeah. There is a decent case to be made. They don't quite come out and say often... And his father was a Nazi. 
that is true. That is true. His, his mother is an unknown character. Um, it's yeah. interesting to talk about this, actually, because oftentimes if you talk about this on Twitter, or even in conversation, it's immediately disregarded as being a conspiracy theory. It's immediately disregarded as being sometimes even an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which is ironic because Klaus Schwab's history, at least his family being a Nazi, was anti-Semitic. But it's it's dismissed as being a conspiracy theory. Is that because the mainstream media is so effective at squashing the truth or so effective at rebranding the truth? Um. Yes, and it's that they don't want people looking at it. Uh, they, the, the power and the concept of conspiracy theory as a label is incredible. It's almost like they read Michel Foucault's early work. I don't know how much postmodern literature we want to talk about, but Foucault's <laughs> first books were, if I remember them in the correct, correct order, were the, the Birth of the Clinic and History of Madness. And so what he actually talks about in those books, he's more famous for history of sexuality later uh, in his lectures on biopower. But what he talks about in those two books in particular is that the social construction of madness, not just the insanity to which it points, the social construction of madness has been used throughout history to silence not only crazy people, but yes. also political dissidents. And it's very effective. It's very effective. And so his point was, at least in theory, that we shouldn't be silencing those people that is a illegitimate application of power by the established authorities to maintain their power over the society. But it's also a cultural thing. It's not just a government silencing those people. That's right. That's and, right. I mean, in the case of conspiracy theorists, I mean, yes, I guess the Department works. of Homeland Security is trying to weaponize government against, uh, against parents in that right. way. But it's also a cultural thing that even if you just are in a debate with a member of your family and they're like, oh, that's a conspiracy, you're a conspiracy, you're a conspiracy theorist. There's there's a human element of shame that comes with that. That's right. And that was, that's what I, what I wanted to say is that Foucault puts these ideas out and then they, it's like they were picked up by the they, the deep, the deep state, literally the intelligence community. And they weave this concept of a conspiracy theory and that the people who hold conspiracy theories are crazy, hence the relevance of Foucault's history of madness. And so since they're crazy, they can't be listened to. And then they're too crazy and they have to be removed from all their social media. Alex Jones being the canary in that coal mine. Yeah, which we called, by the way. Yes. When he was banned, when he was deplatformed, there were very few people that would come to his defense because, well, because he does say nutty stuff. Yeah. Um, and no one wanted no one wanted to feel that human shame of being like, oh, you're a defender of this guy. Yeah, he's obviously too far out there. It's, totally, it was totally. The, it was the attitude. And... I mean, everybody now has an Alex Jones was right jar that's just <laughs> overflowing with coins. So, uh, you know, maybe he wasn't, I mean, he does say some things that are pretty out there. And oh yeah, there, there's no doubt there. that he says some nutty stuff, but does that mean that he should be deplatformed? No, it meant that he was the test case because they knew. I think too that, that's right. and, and not to get too far off on this, but I think the the conspiracy theory label has been repackaged into the word disinformation as well. It has been. That's right. Yeah. And that's the goal. In all these cases, whether it's disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theory, et cetera, or even the words, things like racist and misogynistic and blah, 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 you know, transphobic, not in every case with some of those words, but largely they are used to tell somebody, not you shut up, but you other person don't listen to that. Yes. Do not listen. Do not look into it. That would be racist. That would be going down the conspiracy rabbit hole. There's articles. Don't go down the rabbit hole. Uh, you know, do go down some rabbit holes and make your own decisions. Um, that's actually the nature of the moment that we live in, which is actually a revolutionary moment in a sense yeah. that a lot of people don't think about. It's the same, in fact, as what we thought the Enlightenment was, but now on steroids. We thought that the Enlightenment was setting up the marketplace of ideas. 
but it wasn't. There were experts, there were professors, there were journalists who told us what the correct opinions and ideas and knowledge were. And now that aristocracy is getting busted up. Yeah. Everybody can do their own research and they're finding out that in many cases, the experts are frauds or the experts oh. are fools or the experts are outright liars or yeah. corrupt, bought off. Well, the, the, the Maoist tie in here is really interesting because one of my good friends is a high school history teacher and she's one of the good ones. And the school that where she teaches, they have a lot of Chinese uh, students that come over as exchange students. And when she's teaching history, she obviously teaches uh, the history of Chinese communism. And these students are taught immediately when she begins to say anything that could be construed as negative towards any point in China's history, they put their heads down on their desk, on their arms, and they they don't listen and they they pound their feet underneath their desks. And wow. Yeah. And she said it's she I, I mean, I remember the first time it happened, she called me and she was like, it was so striking because I tried to address it with one of them. And they were worried that the other students would tell on them. That's how much they're told. It's not that they were even being coerced to say anything negative or to regurgitate it. They weren't even allowed to hear it. Wow. It's almost like they live in Canada. Oh, I got my sea, sea countries mixed up. Well, I mean, we're laughing, but it's, I mean, as we'd say on Twitter, funny, not funny. Funny, not funny. That is, I mean, it's, you're right. This is the Maoist tactic. That's what they did with children. It's dangerous to hear yeah. anything that's politically dissident because you might accidentally repeat it. There were people in the Maoist prisons who were accused of espionage just from merely talking to Westerners. Yeah. Uh, saying that things that they said might have made it out of China to other Westerners and thus made China look bad. So they were hauled into prison as spies and thought reformed as a result. Um, this is the the attitude that, that these children understand. And we laugh about Canada because we see the same thing happening in Canada now. We see the same, thing, same things happening throughout Western nations, um, some even in the United States, fortunately somewhat less, but it should be zero. But it's almost like looking in a mirror. We're it, this close to being where Canada is. We are very close. We are very, very close to being in the same position as Canada or New Zealand um, or Australia, or now, especially after this uh, recent change, the United Kingdom. And it's that people think it can't happen here. And it's not like it can, it's that it is. It, it is, is happening. happening here. Well, the other thing that you talk about often that I think isn't talked about as much as the school-related issues. It doesn't talk as much about or as it's not talked about as much as critical race theory and queer theory is DEI. Mm -hmm. DEI, because DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion um, for those who are unfamiliar, although it's hard to be unfamiliar with that phrase at this point. And that doesn't just infect our universities and our school systems. It infects everybody's workplace. Yeah. Not just large corporations, not just boardrooms, but every single employee at almost any company um, in the United States is, is impacted by this. And it's a, it's a medium for the same for the same fascism. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. I mean, I use, I have a whole talk I give where I point out that equity is literally a rebranding of socialism. It's an administered economy to make sure that shares are made equal. That's socialism. So equity is just a rebranding of socialism and diversity and inclusion are the excuses to install political officers or commissars. That's your diver diversity hires. And then inclusion is to censor and purge anything that disagrees with it because that makes a non-inclusive environment to give the wrong people or wrong ideas in a space. So I have this whole talk about how diversity, <laughs> equity, inclusion is in fact that. Yeah. It is in fact the establishment of a of, of, of an office of commissars. And so, okay, fine. But there's even another level with the same Maoism thing that's going on. I recently read a book 
for the first time I've been meaning to get to forever. It's been on my list forever, which is called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a Study of Brainwashing in China by yeah. Robert J. Lifton. I was reading this on a plane, as I'm often on planes. It's like I a 550-page book. It is a 550-page book. And so I was only a few chapters in. I just opened it on a flight home. I was looking out the window after a re- these chapters. Not all the chapters. Some of them are very psychological or very explanatory. And some of them are very, like, it's almost like reading those stories about the like the, the Jews in the Nazi concentration camps and how horrific it was. And it's like you have to put it down and just take it in a minute. I was looking out the window of the plane. It was dark. It was the lights of the cities or whatever flying by, you know, you see it all scattered on the ground. And I was like, this can't happen here. This can't happen here. And I was like, Oh my God, wait, this is DEI. This is DEI sessions at work. Yeah. This is the DEI sessions are that what did they involve? You go in front of a judge, you're accused of a crime, say racism, you go in front of a judge, say a consultant, who then interrogates you as to what you may have done, tells you you don't know how to recognize your crimes from the standpoint of the people or from the anti-racist perspective. They then put you into a social situation after some of this interrogation with other people that are being put through the same circumstances as you, who then engage you in a process in Chinese called dojang, which means struggle, we call them struggle sessions, who are to help you learn to see and to want to learn to see your crimes, to confess to the crimes, which you can only confess honestly to Not when like you can see them. Not like a statutory crime. I think we should actually like no, no, clarify right, right, that. Right. We're talking like... Moral crimes. Yes. Moral crimes uh, for now. And so yes. they were statutory crimes in China, uh, but the espionage and so on. Yes. And so they would accuse you of a crime in these prisons and then interrogate you and then put you through a struggle session and then force you to study the relevant Marxist literature so that you come to see it from the people's perspective, at which point you would recognize why what you did was a crime and or why it was against the regime or why it was was something a failing and then eventually they would use that to do your process of thought reform of brainwashing it's a study of brainwashing in china and it's like that's exactly what our dei workshops in corporate trainings do it's literally the same process and the goal is like re-education it is literally re-education camp at work mandatory to keep your job in every in every workplace across the country for at least two years now and in many cases for five or six so here's my question now that we've brought everyone down now that we (laughs) i mean you have to right because if you don't if you don't acknowledge if you don't understand who you're fighting against you're not going to fight well this is something that i actually often say that um a lot of times even those in the conservative movement who i consider to be either useful idiots or completely useless at best that it's not necessarily that they come at it with a, with with bad intentions. Right. It's that they don't acknowledge what we're fighting. Right, right, so, right. you know, I, Mitt Romney wrote a, a piece in The Atlantic um, a couple of weeks ago in which he called Joe Biden a genuinely good man. And I thought, well, right, that was my reaction as well. I thought, well, of all the naive statements, that completely explains how Mitt Romney tries to negotiate with, with the left. Because if you're negotiating with someone that you just think is unwise or their policies are impractical, then you negotiate in a very different way yes. than if you understand that you are against an adversary that not only wants to take you down, demonize you, vilify your family, re-educate you, and control you, every aspect of your life from start to finish, your your negotiation, your negotiation tactics should be somewhat different. So it's important to understand what we're up against. The million-dollar question is, how do we prevent this from taking over the United States? How do we stop this? So I don't remember who said this in front of me, but um, it's a truism at least that every successful communist revolution in history has something in common. The people, broadly speaking, realized what was going on a day too late. And as it turns out, 
that seems like it's magical thinking. Like if we just continue to raise awareness about the problem, that it's not enough, that we have to do some specific thing in order to prevent this from taking over, prevent this from getting too far. But actually, mass awareness, mass population awareness is the most important thing. You want 15% of the population ready to start yelling whenever they try to implement another one of these policies that will take, as we talked about, are not so well-informed, not so intelligent. I think clueless and feckless are two great adjectives for the politicians. And to scare them into realizing that the people are not happy with what they're doing. But there are far too many people who, in a sense, like Mitt Romney, uh, in, in the example you just gave, are not actually aware of what's going on. And they are therefore saying, well, you know, we can compromise or we can do this or we can do that. And they, they meant, well, they're just stupid, you know, something like this. And that's not enough. So when you, what we need is a increasingly large number of people, which will include increasingly large numbers of professionals and politicians who are genuinely aware of what's going on. You have parents, you'll have um, regular constituents educating their lawmakers, educating their elected officials, educating other public officials who do have uh, the feck part, but not the clue <laughs> part of the clueless and feckless. They will stand up if they understand that they need to and what it's actually about. It's not all of them are corrupt. Many are, but not all of them are. And so the most important thing people can do is actually to get informed on this issue and then get organized and to continue to share this information and including sharing it upward into positions of power and to seek to replace people in power who aren't getting the message. Um, it is actually possible to squeeze these people out. They don't like sunlight, though. So as people become more and more aware, they have to keep shifting their tactics to try to hide. Uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote that, uh, you know, the communist, when he has power, acts in a particular way. But until, and we all know how brutal that is, or we should know how brutal it is, but until he has power, it's necessary for him to adopt disguises. The goal is to pull the mask off over and over and over again, or to get them to flip out and take their own mask off like they do with just about everything once you can get them to admit it. One of my personal goals for the near-term future, I wanted, I hoped it would happen around the 4th of July, uh, is to get them to openly admit, at which point they will double down forever to openly admit that they are trying to dismantle America. I think they came really close. With the 1619 Project. Yeah, well, with many things. But I think they came very close this year on Independence Day of just blurting out that we're trying to dismantle America. This country needs to go. And once they say it, they're going to be stuck with it. And I'm a huge proponent of this uh, line of activism is to force them to articulate and hold their positions openly because they're not just very unpopular, they're horrifying. And when people realize what they actually are, like they did with the groomer issue, they will start to get more and more active to take the kind of necessary action to stop this, hopefully within the boundaries of law uh, restoring law in order to its proper application. And by the way, I probably should have started the interview by introducing you, not just by your name. Um, but I always assume people can, when, when we're having conversations, I always figure people can Google if they want to know resumes. But I should have introduced you <laughs> as the man who actually coined the term groomer. Who made well, who made that a yeah. thing? Like that that's an incredibly that thing. important thing that you did. So if any if if there's anybody in our country who can rip the mask off, I have faith that it will be you. My my final question to you is: Are we going to save America? I mean, I am an optimistic person by nature, so I might not be either. I'm I'm I'm, I'm like a critical theorist. I'm admitting my biases. Uh, <laughs> I am though. I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I actually think 
We are. Um, as somebody who's been yelling about this issue and raising awareness about this issue, you know, often very much alone. You know, we like to say, don't worry, you're not alone. What you recognize is true. I was alone <laughs> for yes. a long time speaking up about this issue. And I've seen the change and I've seen the momentum and I've seen the energy. Uh, I just went to a Moms for Liberty, the national summit a couple of weeks ago in Tampa and 500 moms were there and the energy was enormous. I mean, we're at this conference or I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of kids here. That's a lot. And they're very energetic. They're very enthusiastic. They cheer wildly when people speak. And I don't mean any disrespect to the kids or to YAF or any, but the moms were incandescent. They were far beyond uh, the energy. And Moms for Liberty is 100,000 strong right now. Yeah. So when you realize that there is a reservoir of mama bear, 100,000 strong energy, that's even bigger than what the youth have by virtue of, you know, youth being wasted on the young. I'm very hopeful. That's what I actually, I texted the uh, organizer. She texted me and said, thank you so much for coming and staying the whole time. And I texted back, thank you so much for having me and making it so much fun. And then a little while later, I said, scratch that. That's not why I'm thanking you. Thank you for showing me the future of America and that it's hope. So I do have a lot of hope. I'm like the chills. I know. I, I almost did too. I was like, I'm going to cry on camera. <laughs> like be manly, damn it. <laughs> um, I think that, I mean, this, this is the arc of this is so amazing because not only do we have to understand what we're facing, we do have to feel optimism and hope and we have to know what's in our tool bag, how to actually fight back because people want to. People are awakened to this or beginning to be awakened to this and you're doing incredible work. Um, where can people find that work? Because you you present your ideas as you read them, as you find them, as you articulate them. Um, I'm an avid follower of what you do. Do you want to share with other people um, where you can where they can find it? Yes. So uh, I have a website and a podcast by the name of New Discourses. The website is at newdiscourses.com. And the podcast is easy to find there. I don't know how... I don't actually listen to podcasts, embarrassingly enough. So That makes you sound old. I I am, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> how old do I look? Don't, don't, don't I'm not that. answering that. I'm on camera. This is incriminating. 29 for the some number of times, right? And so um, I don't know how many times it is even. Uh, 15 maybe. But uh, thereabouts. So I was a mathematician. So newdiscourses.com. The podcast is there. It's the New Discourses podcast. Find it where you like them. There are some some different versions of it. Also. You also do short videos. Short videos under yeah. the brand name of New Discourses Bullets. Yeah. Bullet point summaries, despite the graphic being literally a hollow point. Yes. Um, with a bullet point. I knew on that it. you. I knew when I saw that for the first time. I thought, oh, he thinks he's really funny with that. He did. Yeah. <laughs> true. Fact check. One hundred percent true. Look how clever. Okay, you're also on Twitter at Conceptual James. That's right. Conceptual um, James on Twitter for the moment, anyway. Uh, yes. And Conceptual James I'll actually... I'll link to all of this. I'll link to all of this under this yeah. um, video. But I highly recommend that people follow your work. Thank you for sitting down. Thank you for having this long conversation. This was This was um, so invigorating, so encouraging, and so fun. Yeah, you got to go hang out with the moms. That's the trick. Yeah, there you go. There you go. They're Thank so you. so fun. 